While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Okay, so I was I was reading our emails. We get some really nice emails uh, every once in a while. Like uh, this, uh, Alex wrote in from the UK and talked about our our voices for Secret of the Ninja, <laughs> uh, specifically Sanjiro. Oh god! Which, uh, I was actually pointed out by Charlie, a recent listener. Uh, that I may or may not be just borrowing a voice from a camper we had once, so I should probably watch that in the future. Oh, you mean like a little kid from <laughs> yeah. your from your playwriting camp? Yeah. Oh no, that makes it much less funny, or much that, more funny. That kid is hilarious. It's fine. Okay. Uh, but so that was very nice. Um, you know, Jaina wrote in. We've got people from like. English departments at universities writing in who listen to the show. Uh, Jaina wrote in and, and was very excited that we were talking about that crazy backgammon uh, image on the Tis Pity She's a Whore books. We shared mm-hmm. that on our Facebook page. But then this one, Andrew, I just want to mention a little, a little more detail. Abby wrote in, uh, you know, just saying that uh, she's enjoying the show. She got into podcasts because of Serial. So we're her second favorite podcast, I guess. <laughs> I feel like she, okay, that's cool. I feel like we could, we could probably move up on that list if we tried to solve a murder. <laughs> well, we just need to, uh, we have not done a Nancy Drew on the show because every Nancy Drew is about a murder, right? I think so. Or ghosts or something. Or a ghost murder. So, <laughs> oh, by the way, welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And each week we talk for about four or five minutes and then we talk about a book that one of us has read. So we'll get to this week's book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Richard Robert, Robert Persig. Uh, in All right, a wait, do his, do his name again because it's not Richard Robert, Robert Persig. <laughs> Excuse me, that's my father. I'm Robert Persig. Uh, Robert (laughs) Persig wrote the book. Uh, But we're talking about this email from Abby right now. Abby also said, um, she proudly hails from Wisconsin, which is cool. Uh, She said, I've been telling my friends and high school students, I teach AP English Lit about the podcast. I'm trying to incorporate an episode or two into our discussion of works of literature as we've read the yellow wallpaper and a portion of Pride and Prejudice. Uh... Well, I did. I can't vouch for my students, given many students' uh, propensity, like Craig's, to not read assigned (laughs) material in high school. (laughs) So, I just want to caution that we have basically built a a niche internet career out of making good on things you didn't do that you were supposed to do when you were a teenager. Mm -hmm. And if there are teenagers listening, don't do what we did. Yeah, (laughs) do as we podcast not as we do <laughs> i don't know see i think i like this because once you get a toehold with the teens like you know how snapchat is i and don't like, know how snapchat is like it got it got really popular probably because of teens so if enough high school teachers make teens listen to our podcast then we get popular with teens and then the sky's the limit okay thanks teens thanks teens I'm and then in like that. 20 years, they'll want to pay a bunch of money to have like an overdue retro revival or something. <laughs> It'll be like a, a a tour where they try to get us back together and you and I have long since started hating each other. Oh, yeah. No, we we're can, really estranged. We don't even then, read anymore. But then they offer us a lot of money and then they lock us in a room all night long until we work out our differences and we're best friends again. Yeah, that sounds like a good episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, Abby signed her email uh, best and then told me that she accidentally typed beast and then almost left it but changed it. 
I wish that she'd left it as Beast, and I might yeah. start signing emails as Beast, comma, Beast, Craig. Beast, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, everyone, uh, who writes in after they listen to the show. It, it, as you can tell, we get a real kick out of it, and it's a great way to just know what you're getting out of the show and uh, also know who you're inflicting the show upon, which is uh, useful, I suppose. Yeah, the only thing I like better than knowing that people are listening is knowing that people are being made to listen to some <laughs> to it by somebody else. Because so. there's, I don't know, we've you've you and I have done this to each other, but I think the only place where you can like sit someone down and say, "Listen to this," is like a car. I don't know where else you can make someone listen to a podcast and have it feel natural. Mm-hmm. Like a car ride is like, hey, we're stuck in this car for nigh on three hours. Like, we let gotta... me read you three hundred riddles <laughs> off my stupid iPad riddle app. Well, that is something you could do if your name is Craig Getting. That's, uh-huh. that's what I would do. Let's talk about this book. You want to talk about this? Because what's what's a car but a four wheeled motorcycle? <laughs> that you know, you just quoted the book, did didn't you know? Did that's I? Not, no, you didn't. Oh, good. <laughs> Uh, so this is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, recommended to us by one of our patrons, our Patreon patrons, uh, Scott and Amanda. Um, I have never... This is one of those books that I didn't know what it was. Does that make sense? Yeah, right. Like, I've always been dimly aware that it existed, but I never... I think I might have known that it wasn't all that much about motorcycles. Precisely. And that I, was about the sum total of my knowledge. And I think the person who's like, you ever, when you know about a book, you can like picture whose bookshelf you've seen it on. Does that make sense? Sometimes, like, yeah. Specifically, Chris, who was on the show when you were busy getting ready to get married. Um, our friend Chris from college. She, she. Yeah, right. I remember oh. Chris. <laughs> I don't, apparently. From school. Uh, yeah, Chris from school. Uh <laughs> He had it on his shelf, uh, and that made sense to me because Chris, you know, studied some philosophy, and I, I, you know, the questions are more important than the answers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a philosophy book. That's you know, it's about Zen. It's probably full of these little like Zen koans. Like I read the Tao of Pooh when I was high school. I'm hip. <laughs> I get it. You're putting classic philosophy in a hip modern context. I'm down. And then I started reading this book. I got confused uh so let's talk let's talk about the guy who wrote it because i think that's crucial to understanding why the book confused me andrew you did a little bit of reading on robert persig um richard robert robert persig or robert persig to his friends to his friends (laughs) was born in 1928 and he's still around he's 86 years old um as of this recording um born and raised in minnesota um, super smart as a kid. He had an IQ of 170 when he was nine. Do you know and what your IQ is, Andrew? I think it's like 130 or something, but that's according to an internet test that I took 12 years ago. So <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, What's yours? Enough. Do you know what yours I think I, I, I would answer exactly the same thing. Okay. <laughs> About 130 according to the internet. Like not so much that I seem like I'm bragging, but just enough that... I seem like I might be a little smart. Maybe. Just a little. When I apply myself. Most, yeah, it's, I feel, I like knowing that I'm smart enough to know that I'm generally wasting it. Right, yeah. Like. I'm, I'm aware of all the things I could be doing that I am not doing. <laughs> when I way, sit on the couch and eat chocolate chips that out way of the I, bag yeah. of chocolate chips. That way I don't feel too good about myself when on a Sunday it's about two in the afternoon, and I think, well, we could order pizza now and then order pizza later, or we could just wait an hour and order two pizzas. This is a real thing that happened to me yesterday. You double pizza? Yeah, yeah, I double pizza. Oh, man. You should feel bad about yourself. <laughs> I feel pretty good. So um, Persig's IQ was 170 when he was nine, and he uh, graduated from high school at 14, which is kind of nuts. That's nuts. Um. And he got into college, but he was later expelled. And he got he got hung up on this 
on this thing where for any given like scientific problem, there could be multiple hypotheses that could work out. Yeah, the idea being that the way the scientific method works is that you are testing hypotheses. You you posit something and then you run an experiment to see what happens. Now, mm-hmm. we kind of talked about this when we were talking about Richard Feynman several episodes ago. You never want to set up an experiment that is designed to give you the results you want and only those results. Right. Like you need to be open to new results. Now, what Hers- uh, Persig also found is that you can just keep testing new hypotheses <laughs> and every hypothesis is going to, you know, merit another experiment and then that will merit another hypothesis and so on and so forth. And he found it troublesome that you could never you would never run out of another way to test an idea. Right. And so he apparently like sent himself into a, a robot paradox thing and just shut down <laughs> and failed out of college for a bit. So he joined the army in 1946. Um, mm-hmm. He was in Korea for a little bit. Um, and then later he went back to school and earned his bachelor's in Eastern philosophy. He did some more graduate level study of philosophy later, but he never actually got um, his his master's or doctorate Yeah, when he was doing that. Then the um, early 60s, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Now, this was um, after he had been teaching uh, in Montana. He was teaching composition and rhetoric, uh, and he was doing away with grades and, mm-hmm. like, working on his philosophies in his rhetoric classes. And this all pertains, actually, to the plot of the book, which is why it's worth going into such detail. Right. Uh, and um, some of the treatment for his schizophrenia was uh, electroshock therapy, which I understand also comes up at some yes. point in the mm-hmm. book. Um, there's just a little bit more about him that I thought was was interesting. He had two sons, uh, Chris and Theodore, with his first wife. Um, Chris was stabbed and killed in 1979. And uh, Persig then, you know, he he conceived a child with his second wife the next year, and they decided not to abort it because Persig, I guess, considered this new child to have, quote, uh, picked up the life pattern that Chris had previously previously occupied, which I guess there's there's something poetic about that, you know? Yeah, he he actually mentions it in the afterword of this edition of the book. Mm-hmm. And he talks a little more in detail about one of the reasons he didn't want to have a, another kid was that he was in his 50s and he uh, just didn't feel like he was up to it after all he'd been through. Um, and kind of he speaks rather eloquently, I think, about the moment when he was in the doctor's office with his second wife, Wendy, I think is her name. Mm-hmm. And yeah, realized. Kimball realized that they were not on the same page, like realized that they had made some decisions kind of based on him. And then they got in the room. She's 22 years younger than him. uh, And he realized that they were not on the same page. And so that was not okay. So I I give him props for that. Um, And so he had his daughter, Nell and, and there's actually, it's, it's kind of cute at the, the very last page of the book. There's just a string of characters just like, you know, some O's and ones and nines and mm-hmm. a bunch of M's. Um, and he apparently let her like bang on the keyboard. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I was just like when my when my cat walks on the keyboard in an active IM window and I just send whatever it was that he Yeah. Because <laughs> I assumed that he wouldn't have typed it if he didn't want someone to see it. So he even he even says if the editors preserve it, it will be her first published work. <laughs> uh, which is kind of like when Beyonce and Jay-Z let their daughter have a number one single, I think. I don't know if you remember that. I, It sounds right. Like, it sounds like something that would happen. So I'm not All gonna, of our listeners are like, yeah, me. I remember when that happened. And, and I'm like, what's no music? <laughs> Jay-Z, I'm part of Generation Y. What? Who's, who's RK Fire? <laughs> <laughs> who's Beck? <What's> <laughs> Um, there, w- there was one sequel to this book that he did later in 1991 called Lila, an Inquiry into Morals. Yes. Um, and he then, he yeah. was interviewed in 2006 by The Guardian. Uh, dur- he said it was one of the last interviews he would ever give. Um, the only reason he did it was because there was a reprint of Lila coming out. 
Uh, it's a you know it follows a character from this book and tries to extrapolate on some of the philosophies that Persig was exploring in Zen, and uh, also seems like it's a from what I've read and from what he's even said about it, it's it's a little darker than this book, mm-hmm. and perhaps darker than in retrospect he would have made it, which I understand as he was probably kind of trying to work through some of his systems in the wake of his son's death and, and stuff like that. So sure. um, it's if folks come away from reading this book, I know plenty of our listeners were were tweeting about either listening to audiobooks of this book or, or trying to read along in advance of the episode. So if you find it interesting, uh, I'd love to hear from anyone who goes on to the second book um, what it's like. Uh, yeah, right. Because I, I would love a point of comparison. So, um, Yeah, and, and as we get into the book, I want to share one thing that I that I learned because as we, as we already said, we did not know anything about this book, like going into it. (laughs) So I, I knew that there were a lot of other like Zen and the art of X books just like floating around out there. They were like the chicken soup for the soul for like a decade before chicken soup for the soul books became a thing. Yeah, of course. (laughs) And, um, things that I learned is that one, uh, Persig's, you know, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is not the first book to use this formula. The first one is actually a book by uh, Eugen Harrigal, um called Zen in the Art of Archery. Mm-hmm. And uh, Persig said, you know, his book should not be associated with that earlier book in any way, despite having <laughs> named it like pretty much the same thing. It seems like... The easiest way to disassociate those would have been to call your book something else, but I don't know. I'm not a published author. I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. And then, you know, subsequent to uh, to Persig's book, there were a lot of imitators that, that came out. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to share a few of my favorites Okay. that I found. Okay. Before you do that, can I just give a quick shout out to one of our uh, Patreon patrons, Tim who I know went to a college where they studied Zen, and he had to take a class in Zen archery. I don't know if he had to, but he definitely did. Okay. So it's a thing. That's all I'll say. Though at the time when he first said it, I will admit that it sounded a little ludicrous, but I get it. Okay. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, so you can you can find Zen and it's easily either Zen and the art or Zen in the art. The the um, okay format tends to vary, but Persig went with and, and the original archery book went with in. So there's precedent for both, I guess. Um, Zen and the art of cooking beer canned chicken. Wait, <laughs> wait, are these books or just articles on BuzzFeed? These are books. Okay, and I don't know. I don't know, like if they're paper books or like self published. Amazon books are like what the criteria is, but there is a um, there's a great article on usversusthem.com. Okay, that went through Amazon and like found all these crazy now, books. Now, beer Zen can chicken is not like chicken cooked in a beer can. It's I think when you, you like... put a you put a beer can up in there, like not Fifty a... Shades of Grey Wait, style. <laughs> you don't shove a metal can in the chicken. It's probably know. when you like pour beer on the chicken, right? No, I thought you put a beer can in there. Well, I, we have to read this book, I guess, okay, to figure it out. Okay, great. Um, Zen and the art of faking it. Zen and the art of building a log cabin. Uh, Zen and the art of creating escape at home, which seems really bleak to me. <laughs> creating escape at home? Yeah. Is it, Why am I thinking of the movie Home Alone right now? Like, why I don't know. Am I, like, like, it's, it's either you're trying to escape from your you're home. Trapped like you're trying your to home. create like a blanket rope. So you can get out or you're just trying to escape from the responsibilities of like work and family life, which I think is, is worse. Okay. Um, Zen and the art of diabetes maintenance, Zen and the art of CMC outsourcing for biotech and virtual pharma. Stop it. No, (laughs) I think you missed the point. I think you missed it. Zen and the art of street fighting. (laughs) Zen and the art of funk capitalism. No. And this is my, this is the last one. It's my all time favorite. It's called Zen and the art of murder. And it's a murder mystery book about a woman named Zen. 
<laughs> you didn't. I didn't. Someone did. No. <laughs> no. Oh, we try to welcome all covers on this podcast, but come on. <laughs> I think that whoever whoever donates to our Patreon next needs to needs to insist that we read Zen oh, and the Art of Murder for one of our shows. Oh no. Bonus episodes, here we come. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> so I guess we should talk about this book now, right? I think I think so. I think we've primed the pump quite enough. So what is what is this book about? How much does it have to do with Zen and how much does it have to do with uh maintaining of motorcycles? Okay. Um spoiler alert. The motorcycle that you're working on is yourself. Okay, great. Okay. So now that's a, a metaphor. Now already. it's not really it's simultaneously a metaphor and not because the book does not spend a lot but the book goes a long time talking about actual motorcycles <laughs> before it drops that truth bomb on you. Yet on the inside like book jacket, it definitely says the real cycle you're working on is a cycle called yourself. And then it just says from the book. Like <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Wait, so what part of me corresponds to what part of the motorcycle? Like, how are they? It's about knowing the parts and and their form and their function. Um, okay, I almost fell down a rabbit hole of philosophy terms I don't understand. So we got to okay. back this motorcycle up. Yeah, back, back it up. Uh, the real, the elevator pitch is... The narrator is on a uh, road trip with his 12-year-old son and two friends in the late 60s, early 70s. I think it's late 60s. And along the way, you are in his head uh, as he is kind of talking about his everyday philosophies, uh, mostly centered around, you know, motorcycle maintenance and our relationship to technology, which we'll come back to. And then it kind of spins off on this whole tangent about his earlier life as this character he calls Phaedrus or Phaedrus, um, which, and this is where the character clearly becomes uh, Persig, mm-hmm. where he had a nervous breakdown while he was trying to uncover this universal philosophy. Uh, He received ECT and ceased to be that person for a while. And somewhere along this road trip, he is slowly becoming that person again. Uh, ECT, just to clarify is um, electroshock therapy or what's the, what's the actual name for Uh, it? Probably electro and I don't know. I'm going to... Uh, I'll have it. Electroconvulsive therapy. Convulsive therapy. Excuse therapy. I thought it might have had something to do with en- encephalopathy, which is the brain, but I was wrong. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> so the book is kind of structured, interestingly, not unlike Moby Dick in a way. Um, in so that, it's like half a story? And yeah. Then half like a a manual about how to do... I guess motorcycle maintenance. I don't know. <laughs> sort of. It's half a a story about this guy, his son, some of his friends, and mostly him and his son. And then in between those little snippets of more traditional narrative, you get these long first person discussions where the narrator's just talking to you about philosophy, like literally about like Greek philosophy and Kant and Hegel uh, talking about his former life as this guy who you never learn his real name, but he's called Phaedrus in the book uh, that he used to be. Um, he talks about just other musings on life and including motorcycle maintenance and, and other things like that. Uh, not unlike when Ishmael would stop telling you about the hunt for Moby Dick to just talk to you about whales like you're on this journey that is thematically relevant to all the stuff that he is not telling you that he's telling you instead of telling you the story of the book if that makes sense okay that doesn't make sense i lost i don't know (laughs) (laughs) 
So what's what's the what's the dividing line between him as he is like telling you this story and him as he was like Fedris or whatever um, elfish name it is that he's come up with him with for himself? Is it the breakdown and the shock therapy or is it something else? Yes. So the timeline's a little fuzzy. Uh, it seems like it's been about four or five years at the most. His son was his son Chris, named after Persig's real son. Uh, who had not who had not been killed at this point, right? At, no, at the, at the point of the book's writing, it actually tracks pretty closely to Chris's actual, like the actual timeline of their lives. Okay, great. Um, and this road trip was happening when Chris was twelve. About when Chris was six, the incident described in the book is Fedris, while they were living in Chicago, uh, had a mental breakdown while he was out with Chris and needed like. Literally needed his son, his six-year-old son, to help him drive home. And this happened to Persig, actually. Uh, he then spent several days staring at the wall in a catatonic stupor. And they ended up locking him away in a mental institution and then prescribing ECT. And after that, he kind of just became uh, someone who just kind of wanted to get along in life. He lost his job. He lost a lot of his friends. He lost his wife. And their their relationship is really not explored very much at all in the book. Like him and his estranged wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, all the context you have is that his son is with him for this trip. And he writes technical manuals for uh, pharmacists and, and other things. And he's on this big road trip with his son. So he doesn't really seem to remember the the kind of overarching narrative involves him kind of remembering more and more of his previous life. Uh, Fedris kind of popping up almost as a ghost throughout to kind of remind him of who he was and him trying to understand the philosophy that Fedris was after and kind of make it work for him as he's going on. So the fact that he isn't this person anymore, is that presented as a good thing or a bad thing or just as a thing? Like, I think that's that's something that a lot of people, I think, worry about when they're when, when they're like taking drugs or, or they're undergoing some kind of therapy is that whatever comes out the other side, like won't be them. And I so guess. this is what actually I found most frustrating about the longer diatribes of the book is it actually prevented Persig from exploring this more fully um not to say that he doesn't at all so when they're in they end up going back to the college town where he used to be a professor before he had his mental breakdown mm-hmm. and they hang out with uh, i believe the deweeses are their name um some like artist professor friends that he worked with and uh, they visit the college campus where he used to teach. And so there's this sense of him kind of the narrator running into Fedris's life and re-experiencing it. And it feels dangerous to him because he knows what happened to Fedris, but it's not described as like outright bad. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Um, meanwhile, he's worried that his son is suffering from similar mental issues um, his son kind of will get moody and kind of shut down without warning. Uh, what you really learn to discover is that his son doesn't know how to relate to his new father, really. Um, he doesn't, his new dad is very quiet and doesn't talk very much. There's multiple times throughout the book where uh, he's like, what do you think about all the time? Why do you just sit there and think or just like not talk? Um, and at the end of the book, uh, as Fedris begins to reemerge, the son is kind of overjoyed. Like he, he thought that that would happen and hoped mm-hmm. that that would happen. Even though, uh, as Persig describes, he, everyone else in the world was very happy about the recovery. Does that make sense? Yeah, Like this sense that like you were this person. I feel like other stories about um, people who are uh, manic depressive or 
have these kind of really inspiration, you know, it was something that they kind of explored in A Beautiful Mind, even, which is schizophrenia. Um, this sense that you have this genius that is unlocked and yet is... And yet it comes with this bad it, stuff that you also have to deal with. Comes with this, right. like, Faustian price on your intellect and your grip on reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of the people around you wish that you could just like be a person in the world and yet you are like blazing this new path and it doesn't matter what you do um well i think a lot of the people around you probably see the the good stuff like the the brilliant stuff without being party to to as much of the bad stuff because a lot of the time the bad stuff is happening in your in your head yes and it's just it's it's specific to you and so yeah i could see why you know this this fedris person you know, receding would be could could be could be seen as bad by the people around him because they they that's how they knew him. Well, it's right? funny like, the people from his previous life expect him to kind of be the same person. His immediate family are very happy that this that he is kind of changed because he is no longer this like manic driven personality who's out to you know destroy 4,000 years of thought and not care about his family in the meantime. Um, meanwhile, his son is one of the few people who really wishes that he was Fedris again, if that right. makes sense. Okay. Um, so that's the like character arc of it that I think is really interesting, and I wonder if Persig just maybe isn't able to explore it in a greater narrative context because it's basically his story. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I guess to go back 20 minutes, I <laughs> my conception of this book, like I said, was that it, it would be a little bit more like a classy chicken soup for the soul. <laughs> you know? Like a how so, explain to me exactly how classy's not the right word. Go down. Okay. I expected it to be uh, a little bit more overtly a series of parables or a series of zen koans or you know little musings on life within the context of motorcycle maintenance or something like that okay i did not i expected it to be kind of similar to what the first third of the book is um i did not expect it to be a philosophical tract on uh the metaphysics of quality i'm not making that up uh disguised as a novel the autobiographical exegesis of this guy's philosophy disguised as a novel and not that's not to say that you can't do that as a writer uh it's certainly not what i expected going in and at times the book seemed to be tricking me into feeling that that's not what it was (laughs) so then when it was that i was okay with it but then when it would not be that for a little while I was annoyed. Okay. Um, so it bring. I do want to cite one of the things that Scott, who suggested this book, said is uh, he went into the book really wanting to love it because he likes motorcycles and ended up being sort of bummed out because, quote, whacked out philosophy. <laughs> so. <laughs> so not so much about the motorcycles. So you, you've talked about the um, the narrative part of the book, I guess, which has to do with... with um, these like dueling personalities and the reactions of the people around, you know, the Persig character Mm -hmm. to these different personalities. So like what, what else is he driving at? Like what, what's the philosophical arm of this, I guess. So is that a helpful question? No, it's a super helpful question. I'm trying to structure my answer. Um, At the top of the mountain. uh, And it's, I think it's useful to talk about this because the book does talk about how classical philosophy is often organized in hierarchies and it, okay. you know, and knowledge is often organized in, in hierarchies. He uses a really good example of just like genus and family and phylum in biology um, because it allows you to study things at different levels. Right. Yeah, um, right. At the very tippy top of this book is something that Persig has called quality. It's like capital Q quality. So okay. when we're working from the tippy top to the bottom, is the tippy top the most important stuff or is it the stuff that 
you can only chase after after the bottom stuff is after you've laid the foundation for it both okay because i'm thinking like specifically of like the hierarchy of needs okay thing okay as my like frame of reference for this discussion fair enough okay um the book does not let on that quality is the ultimate philosophy that it's driving at because of the way the narrative is structured you have the narrator slowly unpacking what Fedris was working on and slowly ramping the reader up to this idea of quality. Uh, and all the way back at the beginning, he is talking about our relationship to technology. That's where the whole motorcycle comes in at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So he uses this example of his friend John, who's on the trip with him. I actually wanted to ask you about this a little bit since you worked with computers and now you write about computers one of the positive things that people have been saying about this book in the last even the last five or six years it's pretty prescient about how we feel and feel about and relate to technology specifically complicated machines of any kind in that these people who are on this trip with him john and sylvia he describes them as kind of hippies who want to run away from the technological world Right. Okay. Because it doesn't fit in the groovy dimension. <laughs> and I am quoting Persic. <laughs> so the groovy dimension What all is in the groovy dimension, do you think? Gro- what's in that what's in that alternate universe? The groovy dimension is uh when you are governed by feeling, right? Um everybody's just chill all the time. Just chill all the time. Uh but the other dimension that church of reason you might call it as it's cited in the book a couple times is the flip side of the coin it's the person who kind of works through a machine and likes to know how it works and and understand all the bits and pieces of it and i think i i see a little bit of this dichotomy in your and my understanding of computers let's say like you know how these machines work at a functional like chip level right Kind of. Kind of. Okay. But like if you have a computer that's malfunctioning, like you can get in there and you can pick at it and look at the systems and tweak it and like massage it yourself, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Um the flip side of that is how Percy describes his character John, which I sometimes feel myself, is the like, it doesn't work. I don't know. I'm it's <laughs> it's driving me up a wall. And he talks about their John and Sylvia's relationship sometimes being strained and he traces it all the way back to like a leaky faucet and John just not fixing it. And then that faucet, like, you know, picking at both of their psyches subtly until they're just annoyed at everything. And then Mm -hmm. they just need to get away and run into the woods. (laughs) And he doesn't understand why people who have this one kind of mentality react so negatively to technology and th- does that make sense yeah it, it does because my I, i'm i'm thinking more of my own relationship with technology where i am simultaneously kind of like i do worry about all of it sometimes and like what it collectively is is doing to us as people uh-huh but on the other hand like one I think that people who are who are way too far on that end of the spectrum are like doing a bit of a knee jerk thing without really thinking through the thing. Like like people who are like technology bad, e readers bad, whatever. Yeah. Like I think those people are are um, overreacting a bit. Uh huh. But I do worry about like we're all wearing watches now. Like like suddenly watches are a thing that we need, and like you specifically mean smartwatches. People have been wearing yeah, watches for a long time. Yeah, no, just the 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 things that that these that companies convince us that we need. I guess it's more about a, a corporate or like consumerist thing than it is a technology thing. Yeah, but anyway, it's like it's my my relationship to it is like simultaneously I understand how it works and I think it's cool and I enjoy it on that level. But I also sort of resent like the way that companies manipulate our feelings about this stuff and the, and the way that we rely on it even when we hate it, you know? Yeah, and I think Persig is not quite 
writing in the in the late 60s, I don't think he's quite prepared to talk about that because that type of commercialization specifically of, you know, computer technology has not quite happened. Yeah, cuz it was a lot more at this period about the, you know, the people in their garages who almost universally or at least way more than now were the people who understood how it worked and just wanted to do more. Yes. Uh, and so what he's even talking about with motorcycles is that there's this divide between people who buy a, th- a thing and expect it to work. And if it doesn't work, they take it to the person who makes it work. Uh, or you can learn about the thing, learn how it works, build a relationship with it yourself, and take ownership of it. And you will derive a greater quality of life from your relationship to that thing. Right? Okay, yeah, I get that. Um, it actually takes an odd kind of liberal libertarian turn at some point where he is very individualist. Like he thinks that a lot of society's ills can be solved if we took greater care with our own individual relationships to the world around us. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. And the yeah, things yeah. that we use he would rather see society fixed by all of us kind of fixing ourselves than uh, a bunch of programs that serve everyone. There's like a quote in the book that I I won't be able to find quickly enough, but it kind of rubbed me a little the wrong way. Uh, If only because it's like, I, I jotted down a note that said the motorcycle metaphor is complicated as it's related to some problematic economics. Okay. So he talks about like the being able to go out and get the proper tools to work on your thing and have like your welding workshop in your garage so you can like work build your own pieces for your motorcycle. Cool cuz we all have welding workshops and room for welding workshops. Yeah, and the and especially in the modern day the like the time argument is a tough one when I personally know like various levels of the economic ladder how hard it is to have time to do anything but like just live yeah (laughs) and provide for people so there's yes i totally agree with the mental argument for taking time with things and not falling into what person calls gumption traps uh, What's a gumption trap? <laughs> okay, there are two. Just main... imagine walking through a wood, walking through the woods, and you step on this patch of leaves and you fall down there, mm-hmm. and you discover that you are you have stepped into a gumption. Trap. A gumption trap. There are a couple different gumption traps, and it it relates to an idea called learned helplessness, um, which Persig does not use, but other people have used. Where one, it's like you start to believe that you're failing or it's almost, I find it actually very useful to think about it in terms of the way that we currently understand willpower. Like if you try something a bunch of times and it's not working, stop. Like you're going to break it more. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's a gumption trap. Um, another gumption trap that you can fall into is value rigidity. So you think that the world is one way. And if it's not that way. You just keep banging on the world until it is. And usually you bang it so hard it breaks. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, like if you think the solution to a problem is one specific way, you're only going to see the parts of the problem that confor- that confirm what you already think. Yeah. Rather, and that, and that happens all the time. Like, I don't know. Here, here's a here's a practical example. Is back in November when um, when our ceilings. I was leaked. gonna cite this. <laughs> um, it had it had just rained, and so Susanna and I assumed that it was something with the roof. Mm-hmm. And and we, you know, I I said that to the landlord, and the landlord came over and he looked at it, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I mean, we've we've ever had problems with the roof, so you know, so he didn't." really think the challenge our hypothesis and then on like day five of this leak going on i I, like i don't know unless there was a swimming pool on the roof that i didn't know about like there is no no possible way way. (laughs) that it could be the roof and so once i once i started thinking it is it is super unlikely that this could possibly be the roof like there's no way it could continuously leak at this rate for this amount of time. As soon as I did that, like within 12 hours, 
like a property manager guy was in here. He'd punched a hole in the ceiling. He discovered it was a pipe, and that was that. Like precisely, yeah. yeah. Fresh eyes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so Full hearts can't lose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of think that gumption traps are the most useful thing. One of the most useful things in this book, because um, it's just so. It's like, oh, these are the ways that you get in your own way. If you are able to take a step back from yourself and the world that you're interacting with, like you will succeed, like you will mm-hmm. have a better life. Um, okay, but all of this stuff, the groovy dimension versus the church of reason, <laughs> uh, he spells out in more, you know, more traditional philosophical terms as the classical mind and the romantic mind. Okay. Um, the classical mind, again, likes to examine things in hierarchies and see them in form and structure, etc. The romantic mind likes to react to things and and have a visceral response to something and then act on it. Um, he sees this as a false dichotomy. Uh, and he's fighting the whole, you know, Phaedrus and Persig both uh, believe that there is a unifying element missing that needs to be discovered or else philosophy is broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also is takes pains throughout the book to point out that, like, the Greeks and Western philosophy are the classical mind and uh, good examples of the romantic mind are Zen and Eastern philosophy. Um, so there you go. Okay. He stumbles upon this idea called quality, which is like, what is good in life? What is good? How do we know it's good? How do we roll it into the rest of our life? Right. Mm -hmm. And the way that the story is relayed in the book, funnily enough, is that like someone working at the university where Fedris is teaching says to him, are you teaching students quality today? And he goes, sure, because he has no idea what that means. And then this starts to eat at him. And so he assigns the students to tell him what quality is. Okay. And they're like, what are you talking about? This is the worst essay. I can't answer (laughs) this. And this leads him on a quest where he ends up abolishing grades and having them like read each other's essays out loud and just voting on what is of like capital Q quality or not. And in a way it kind of works like people intrinsically know what is good or bad, but also he can't shake that it is simultaneously subjective. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Kind of like, is it, is it objective quality or is it just what you like? is really like the argument that gets tossed back in his face. So is is it actually good or is it just what you're comfortable with or what you know and precisely what you what you personally think is good. Okay, cool. But he is Persig and Fedris believe that there has to be something that can unite uh eastern and western romantic and classic uh subject and object he calls it like you the perceiver of a thing and the thing itself, you and your mm-hmm. motorcycle. Uh so he hits on this idea of quality as this, like, as the relationship between you and the world around you, right? So you write about tech, Andrew, right? Yes. Your feelings of something actually happen, your relationship to it, before the thing and you exist. Excuse I gave me? you an what aneurysm. Quali- Wait, what do you yeah give me i i, I want to build a bridge but i need you to give me more materials otherwise i'm just trying to tightrope walk across a chasm on a on a thread i'm, so. I'm trying i don't uh, okay say say it again just lay it out lay out that last part again he, and i'm gonna try and try and decipher he says that quality is um Oh, I'm going to find it. The metaphysics of quality are... It happens before you observe an item. It's a pre... It's a pre-perceptual experience. So it's like a preconceived notion about something? Or what? It 
precedes intellectual construction of something. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. It is now, and here's the only way that uh, I forgot about this. I'm reading about it right now to make sure I, I understand. Um, quality for Persig is the best way to express the present. Okay. Okay. So the past is what you feel about a thing you just observed, and the future is what you anticipate your relationship will be with that thing moving forward. Okay, so present, quality. I'm eating this burger and it's really good. The past is I ate that burger and it was really good. The future is I'm looking, I'm thinking about this burger, I'm looking at the burger on the menu, I'm reading the description, and I think it's going to be pretty good. I, I think so. <laughs> but I think quality the thing that Persig's after is that quality existed you did not ex- you exist because of the quality between you and the burger and the burger exists between because of the quality between you between the burger and you so the burger exists because I l- like burgers no the burger and, so and you burgers? exist because you like the burger and the burger because, suits you. Because who's going to eat the burger? <laughs> I don't know anymore. <laughs> I want to talk about motorcycles. This is the problem of the book. So I feel what he's really after is he's trying to get after like what Zen is or what the Tao is. And in both of those philosophies, if you put a name to it, you're lying. Like that is... In, that is just understood, and he's said it about both of those philosophies himself. And the the biggest issue that he runs into with this idea of quality, he initially expresses it as something that cannot be defined. He proves that it exists because he can imagine a world that is different and changed without it. So, like, what happens to food if there's no quality, where we would all eat, like, gummy paste, right? Like, food, like... You wouldn't be able to sell anything because nothing would be better than anything else, right? Right. Yeah. So there are companies that are trying to make that happen. But... Yeah. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Google. Um, he Good can, job, Soylent. He can prove that quality is a thing, but he can't define what it is, or else it wouldn't have the power that it has. Does, uh... So, I like. I think a burger is good. <laughs> But not everybody thinks that it's good. I don't know. But like enough people think that it's good that it drives burgers to exist. Sure. And new people are born and they grow up to eat burgers. I don't. I don't... <laughs> There's also like I am trying so hard. This is as hard as I've ever worked on this podcast. <laughs> God, and I can't help you. That's the problem. So there's another part of the book, and we're we're running out of time. So it's going to get even more headaches. So he also talks at one point. So the latter third of the book, okay, the latter third of the book, quality has been established vaguely. and Just like our burger thing. He's told us that the bike you're working on is yourself. and Burger you're making on the Wawa (laughs) touchscreen is yourself. The latter part of the book. You don't get burgers from Wawa, Andrew. Stop it. <laughs> you can get okay. cheesesteaks, though. <laughs> okay. Um, so the latter third of the book, he is giving us as much detail on what the heck happened to Phaedrus as possible. Now, Phaedrus, you know, leaves the school in Montana because his whole, like, no grading thing blows up in his face. He goes to this... Who'd thunk? He goes to this institute in Chicago... That is about the like the graduate study of ideas and methods, and he's like, "Hey, listen, you gotta let me come here and you know study this stuff." And he enrolls in this class on rhetoric and basically sets out to destroy Aristotelian thought. Like he thinks that Aristotle sucks, and his these two professors are trying to shove Aristotle down his throat, and it builds to this like intellectual battle between him and the head of the program he kind of wins okay 
Okay. I don't quite understand how, because philosophy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it has to do with like. This is where the book takes a whole turn that I was not really interested in, and I there's I, another turn. I I well inside of the turn I'm talking about where okay. I I was not necessarily interested in a history of philosophy, but I understand that based on the characters in the book, that was necessary. Like, you get pages and pages upon, like, what is Greek philosophy and why it relates to this and why it relates to that. and <laughs> Good noise. Yeah. That was a good one. So he, like, wins this battle about quality with his professor and then realizes that to do so, he has defined quality far in far more detail than it can actually be defined if it's to be believed what he thinks it is. So then okay. he has a mental breakdown. <laughs> okay. Does Robot that, paradox. Does that make again. sense? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he, several years go by, he goes on this road trip with his son, and he thinks about sending his son home on a bus back from San Francisco, and maybe he's going to kill himself, but he doesn't. He becomes Fedris again, and the book ends. All right. We made it. And it does, and this is where I'm like, wait a second. Was I supposed to like the narrator? Because I don't feel like I like Fedris. And I now don't feel like I like the narrator. And I guess I'm not supposed to like either of them because that's like Zen. Like, that's most Zen stories end like that from what Maybe from it's not my, important that you like them. I guess it isn't, but man, I spend a lot of time in his head and it's weird. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds crazy in there. I'd rather I'd much rather spend my time in the groovy dimension. <laughs> it's 420 all the time in the groovy dimension. I I feel like this book has really lived on because of what it does have like kind of what I was saying earlier about gumption traps and the relationship between us and the machines and the technology in our lives like that's it feels kind of new agey and i know that persig has always kind of wished that it actually moved on to philosophy shelves which it hasn't mm-hmm. um because he is really trying to enter into a discourse with thousands of years of philosophical belief and rhetoric and it comes across as far more about american psyche and what to do about it which pushes it more towards like chicken soup for the motorcycle soul um and i think, I think that's just called gasoline <laughs> okay okay uh so i feel like the book is caught between itself does that make sense i mean i'm certainly caught between the book and myself right now. <laughs> like, I, Yeah. Okay. I, I can see why you were worried about, um, I mean, we talked about this before the show. I can see why you were worried about not being able to capture it or like not getting to everything, because it sounds like not only is there a lot to unpack, but it's hard to unpack and it's like intentionally hard to unpack. Yes. And the, the part that I was not expecting was that it was also vaguely true like that for me complicates the book in a way i wasn't prepared for and that's not like you can you can pull even if you can't understand this thing and it's it's like totality you can still pull stuff out of there that you can identify with as as we've been trying to do for this entire hour i think yeah i think there's stuff in the care with which he talks about approaching a machine you care for you know understanding all of the parts in both form like what they are and function and what they do so that if you need to work on the cycle you're not just like oh i need to get the new part it's well why is that part the way it is what purpose does it serve if i need to replace it can i build my own part like having ownership over the world around you and giving yourself the time to develop that ownership right yeah which is not something that we do like we i mean i'm looking at my iphone right now because it's telling me the time and telling me we're basically out of time yeah we we've been out of time for a little while (laughs) but like it is built as an appliance that i just press buttons and it goes like if it 
stopped working, I would first call you on someone else's phone, and then <laughs> I would take it to Apple, and they would hopefully just fix it. And if they couldn't fix it, they'd give me a new one. Right, because, I mean, at this point, and this this may or may not have anything to do with this book, but at this point, these things have become sophisticated enough that it's not possible for the layperson to to fix them. Like, like there there are things that are fixable, but for the most part, like, if basically anything on the motherboard in there goes bad, you just can't, like, no matter how much you want to, you can't really fix it yourself at home. Like, it's no. become, it's gone beyond the ability of somebody to, like, understand and learn in a way that, like, I guess motorcycles or even earlier computers wouldn't have. So, I guess that ties in. Because he's he's arguing that, that a lower level knowledge of, of this stuff is beneficial to everyone. And at this point, we're getting we're getting into things that are so sophisticated that you you just can't. That's not even an option. I guess. I, I wonder how I wonder how we would feel about yeah. stuff like that. You I know? I guess what you would do is say, try to understand the systems at place, right? And you know, if it's if, even if it's just understanding the system of replacing it, so that you mm-hmm. are not completely bummed out and dismayed when. It takes two weeks to get a new one or like, like just have patience for understanding the systems of the world around you. Um, he talks at one point he talks about like, yeah, you can throw, you can revolt against a leader of a government, but unless you are prepared to work through what caused that government to become worthy of a revolt and stop all of those causes and change them. You won't actually accomplish any change, right. um, which I, which I think is what most revolutions end up doing. Yeah, you you have a you know you have a, a coup, and nobody then, thinks beyond ousting whoever it is that's currently in power. Precisely. Uh, so I think that was one of the extensions of even the first part of the book that seemed to make the most sense and and kind of have larger relevance than the narrative. Again, uh, we'll wrap, but I, I think just the narrative creates some weird complications created some weird complications for me about how to think about the book because clearly the narrator has gone through some stuff and is unreliable and has issues and the book kind of winks and nods at that and yet he is espousing a capital Q quality of life mission and philosophy that theoretically you are the you the reader are supposed to like take um that conflict is both interesting and problematic i think for getting that point across and is is probably why people are fascinated by the book but not quick to like i don't know put it on a shelf next to aristotle maybe sure Okay, well, I, th- I think that's as close to a conclusion as we're going to be able to come here. Yeah, so. if we open if we open any point of, like, this book back open, we'll talk about it for 20 more minutes. Yeah, and we, we can't do that. We- so if, if, if you, I guess if you have unpacked any individual chunk of this book and you've related to it as, as we've been trying to do, we would really love to hear from you. Um, send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com because I suspect this is too long for a tweet. Um, if if you can fit it into 140 characters, congratulations. You can send it to twitter.com slash overduepod. You can also throw it at us on Facebook at facebook.com slash overduepod. In the past um, week, we've got a bunch of great tweets. Um, we read some of the emails we got earlier. Uh, many of these people are also liking and commenting on Facebook, but I want to give shout outs to Lee, to Margaret, to Lauren, to a quintet of people who tweeted at us during the Sense and Sensibility on TV last night. <laughs> uh, Wesley, Brittany, Margaret, Rebecca, and Catherine, uh, Sean, Chrissy, Jocko, Tony, and Alex, Cassie, who bragged about forcing us to read a book last week, uh, Amber, Jamie, J Deep. Um, people have been really vocal in the past couple weeks and it's actually really wonderful to know that you're listening to the show and that you're enjoying it and uh we're not enjoying it we don't we don't get many of those but if if that happens let us know so we don't do it again i guess (laughs) (laughs) um if you if you're a new listener um or you're trying to direct new listeners to the show if you're trying to make some teens 
listen to the Haas new podcast around, even though I guess we've been doing this for two years, so not really that new. Um, you can go to OverduePodcast.com. Up there we have links to iTunes and Stitcher and to our RSS feed. You can use all of those to subscribe to the show and get new episodes as soon as they go up. If you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, do rate and review us because it helps us out in the rankings and uh, just makes us feel and look good. Um, we also have our Patreon project, which we mentioned earlier. That's just an easy way for people who really like the show to chip in a little bit, help us pay for books, help us pay for hosting. We are, um, we've, we've got enough money at this point that we are starting to talk about other ways we can use it to like spread the word and, um, and promote the show. So yeah, as, as we do that, I, I think we'll give patrons some updates on just what we're doing. Um, at this point, our next milestone goal is at $150 a month, and at that point, we're going to start recording an extra episode every month, and uh, patrons will get access to it about a week before we put it up on the main feed for everybody else. We are perilously close, I think, <laughs> to crossing that milestone goal. Which is kind so, of awesome, by yeah, the way. Like, yeah. So if if you want if you want us to do that, patreon.com slash overdue pod, even a dollar a month is is more helpful to us than you know. So just thank you so much to everybody who's already doing that. And if you do that between now and the next time we record, thank you in advance for uh for for helping support our, our little show and, and help keep it going. Andrew, do you know what you're reading next? I do, but I don't have it to hand. That's okay. We we uh, have a couple guest episodes in the works, so we'll look out for those. We'll keep you posted on those. I'm vamping for Andrew right now. <laughs> I'm going to be reading A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. Great. That's another patron suggestion. We have a few more of those coming up. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's been fun so far. I think we've both... I, I can't tell if you liked Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, but I think we at least got something out of it. So I liked it. More while I was reading it than I liked it when I thought about it. Sure. And I've, like, in response to the Sparrow episode, I've had two or three people tell me that they really want to read it now. So that one especially I think people people liked. I'm glad that we got exposed to that. But, yeah, uh, we'll be back uh, next Monday. And until then, everybody, thanks for listening and try to be happy. Beast Craig. Beast Craig.